Story 10 of The Human Boy and the War by Eden Philpotts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 10. The Turbot's Aunt. Of course, he was not really called Turbot, but just after he came to Merivale, some ass in the fifth, started the silly rag of calling everybody after a fish, and pretty well every fish known to science was rung in. In fact, they just about went round. Sometimes the likeness was fairly clear, and the simile was good. For instance, being head of the school, I was called Salmon, which is the king of fish. And as I am underhung and have rather fierce eyes, there was a certain fitness in calling me Salmon. But after I had decided that Abbott could not have his colors for footer, being lame, there was a feeling against me among Abbott's friends, and Tracy called me Tinned Salmon, which was merely silly and not in the least amusing. Nor was it amusing to call Maybrick Sardine, because he kept tins of this fish in his desk. But John Dory was all right for Nicholas, that being the ugliest fish in the sea, and Nicholas the ugliest chap at Merivale. Porpoise was true for Preston, who inclines to great fatness and blows after exertion in a very porpoise-like way. But to call Briggs herring because he was a doter on a bloater, as Tracy said, and to call Tracy himself a torpedo ray because he was always trying to give shocks, was footling without being funny. On the other hand, it was neat to call Pratt cuttlefish because he was always inky to the elbows, and as far as Bradwell was concerned, the nickname of Turbot suited him very well, owing to his eyes, which always goggled if a master spoke to him, and also owing to his mouth, which was all lips and rather one-sided when he laughed. Kids, of course, have a poor sense of what is really funny, owing to their general ignorance, yet they prefer their own feeble jokes to ours. A joke that the sixth sees in a moment is utterly lost on them, while utter piffle, that no sane person would smile at, makes them scream. We, for instance, called Mitchell Shark because of his well-known habits over money, but this did not amuse the kids in the least, while they called Forbes Minimus Whale because he was the smallest boy in the school, which naturally could not cause anybody but an idiot the least amusement. Well, Bradwell was far from interesting from a mental point of view, having, as our master Mr. Fortescue said, apparently outgrown his brains. He was just at his seventeenth birthday when these remarkable events happened, but at first glance, and in fact until you talked to him, you would at once have said he was grown up. He was in the lower fifth, and it really looked as though a master was in the lower fifth rather than a pupil, and he was only there because it would have been a burlesque to put him any lower, though in strict justice, as far as his knowledge was concerned, he would have been in his right place in the upper third. But he had to stop in the lower fifth, and even there was an absurd sight, being six feet high and very large in every way, and having a distinct moustache which, owing to its being black, could not be hidden. What a scissors could do, he did, but it was there, and grew by night, and could not be concealed. He was a very finely made chap, and had magnificent muscles, but such was his awkwardness and stupidity that he couldn't even use these muscles properly, and he was no earthly good even in the gym. At games he failed utterly, though he tried hard, 
but he was too slow even for a full-back at footer and couldn't get down quick enough for a goalie in fact rapid movement seemed utterly beyond his power at cricket he was also an object of utter scorn for despite his hands which were huge he couldn't hold the simplest catch and despite his reach which was that of a six-foot chap he had not the humblest idea of timing a ball or the vaguest notion of how to play a stroke in fact such was his unworthiness that he could only have played in the third eleven and as that was naturally composed of kids of eleven and twelve it would have been an outrage to see him in it bradwell meant well but he was rather barred not from dislike but simply because he had as it were grown up before his time and had a kid's mind and a man's body in fact he fell between two stools in a manner of speaking because to the sixth and the masters he was a thing of naught while to those who had a mind like his own he was grown up and no use in any way i was the only one at merivale who understood his weird case and when he first came i let him fag for me but he was awful as a fag and such was his over-anxiety to please and shine that he never did either i had in fact to chuck him at sixteen years and eleven months of age he led rather a lonely life but when the war broke out he said he was very interested in it and asked me sometimes if i would be so good as to explain military matters to him which i did in the simplest words possible as anything like regular military terms would have been far beyond him on hearing that aeroplanes have great difficulty in descending by night he invented a scheme of stretching strong nets with a big mesh on poles ten feet above the ground spread over half a mile of landing-place to catch them this showed mind in a way but he never appeared to have any real martial instinct and when once a girl in merivale handed him a white feather he stopped and took off his hat and said i quite understand what you mean but i shan't be seventeen for a fortnight yet this the girl naturally refused to believe and the turbot came to me and complained about it as a matter of fact i rather backed up the girl not for giving turbot a white feather which is a vulgar and silly thing to give anybody because you never know as the great case of fortescue showed but because she didn't believe turbot when he said he was only about to be seventeen to look at him he might easily have been married which shows appearances are very deceptive but anyway i said you can't blame a flapper for thinking you are of age to join the army bradwell anybody would think so and lots of younger-looking chaps than you have said they were eighteen and been passed without a murmur though their birth certificates would have given them away but anybody six feet high and with a clearly visible black moustache and with your muscles would pass the authorities and you may bet that many have he merely goggled and said no doubt i was right i must tell you that turbot had no father or mother and in fact nobody but a single oldish aunt who lived at plymouth but he had a guardian who sent him to merivale when his family unfortunately died and at first he stopped at merivale in the holidays but once the aunt took him for a fortnight at easter and she appeared to like him for after that he always went to her the guardian did not however like turbot and turbot would have been quite content to stop at merivale in the holidays rather than spend his time with the guardian who had no friendly feeling for him in fact you may say that turbot was a duty rather than a pleasure to the guardian 
then at the beginning of the autumn term in the first year of the war turbot's aunt wrote to dr dunston and asked if turbot might spend saturday till monday with her because it was going to be his birthday and the doctor gave permission so turbot went and naturally was not missed in any way till monday morning then at roll call before chapel the turbot's well-known bleat was not heard and it was soon perceived that he'd done something very much out of the common nothing had been heard from his aunt apparently and so a telegram was dispatched to her and as no reply came to it dr dunston began to worry he then sent off a telegram to the guardian and the excitement decidedly thickened after dinner the doctor sent for me as head boy and told me that the guardian had heard nothing whatever about turbot i may tell you travers he said though there is no reason to repeat it that bradwell is not persona grata with the gentleman who stands to him in loco parentis that is unfortunate for bradwell because he may lack friends in the future being a boy without any mental ability or that charm and power to please we occasionally find in the stupid lad his guardian however evinces no uneasiness at the disappearance of bradwell and my knowledge of human nature inclines me to doubt if the individual in question will much care whether bradwell returns or does not i speak of course in confidence but he is a busy man and has a large family of his own with its concomitant anxieties he sends his own boys to harrow and it is not for us to judge his motives in so doing or whether they are guided by disinterested desire for the future welfare of an obscure attorney's sons or influenced by that spirit of snobbishness from which few englishmen are entirely free now i shall ask you this afternoon travers to undertake a little mission which i can safely trust to you we are as you know very short-handed and to spare a master is almost impossible i will therefore invite you to go as far as plymouth call at number ten motley plain villas and ask to see miss mason the maternal aunt of bradwell and his sole surviving relative it is a somewhat delicate duty and you must regard it as a compliment that i seek your aid here is half a crown for your return railway fare you will alight at mutley station and should catch the five-thirty train back to merivale the lady has not responded to my telegram hence my desire before putting the matter in the hands of the police to learn all she may be able to tell us present my card and she will see you at once if at home if not wait until she returns it was rather a responsible thing and a great compliment to me so i went first putting on my best clothes and a new pair of gloves arrived at plymouth i got out at mutley and easily found mutley plain villas which were only a quarter of a mile from the railway the house was small but very neat in appearance and the door-knocker which was of highly polished brass gave a loud tapping sound into the hall there was no sign of the turbot a servant of considerable age answered my knock and when i asked her if miss mason was at home she replied that she was she told me to walk in which i did i then gave her dr dunston's card and was shown into a neat drawing-room which had a piano in it and a pile of khaki wool on a sofa there was also an illustrated newspaper in the room and i sat down on a chair and read the illustrated newspaper until miss mason arrived presently she came and proved younger than her servant though still not in reality young 
she was unlike bradwell in every way even her eyes did not resemble his being black and small you might say beady and her mouth had thin lips which revealed lustrous teeth which might have been false ones though on the other hand they might not curiously enough she said i was just writing a letter to dr dunstan when you arrived now i can send a message by you instead are you his son no miss mason i answered i am travers the head boy at merivale school how interesting she said and what are you going to do in the world travers i leave next term this is my last term in fact and i am then going to try for woolwich i said that means the army of course she answered i hope you will pass well i then thanked her for this kind wish and said i hope so too owing to the war i explained there is no very great difficulty in passing into woolwich at present and i hope to get on quickly and take my place in the fighting line before the war is over she approved of this quite right she said i never wanted to be a man before the war but i do now she spoke in a very martial and sporting way and rang for tea this was good of its kind and when i had eaten pretty well everything after handing her each dish first she asked me if i would like an egg and of course i said i would then she ordered the old servant to boil two eggs and the old servant did so and i ate them both we talked of the war, and, funnily enough, I quite forgot all about the turbot till a clock chimed on the mantelshelf the hour of five. This, as it were, reminded me of my mission. I must soon go back to the station, I said, so perhaps you will now be so kind as to tell me about turbot. And who is turbot? she asked. So I had to explain that we were all called fish, owing to a silly joke, and i also hoped that she would not think that i meant anything rude to her nephew by mentioning him in that way she was not in the least annoyed and said ralph came to me on saturday and he left me on sunday morning do you know where he has gone i asked and she said i haven't the slightest idea where he has gone travers that's very serious i said because your nephew's guardian hasn't the slightest idea either her lips tightened over her dazzling teeth at the mention of the guardian, and I could see she didn't like him. She spoke in a sneering sort of voice and said, "'Ah, really?' Then, feeling there was nothing more to discuss, I got up and cleared. "'Let me know if anything transpires,' she said, and not happening to remember exactly what transpire meant, I merely said that no doubt the doctor would tell her all that might happen in the future about Bradwell.' she shook hands in a kindly manner and saw me to the gate and such was her friendly spirit that she picked a small blue flower and gave it to me to wear put it in your buttonhole she said which i did do until i was out of sight and could chuck it away without hurting her feelings the doctor didn't seem to like what i had to say and evidently thought i hadn't got it right his aunt appears as callous as his guardian said the doctor i am to understand that he went out on sunday morning and did not return and that miss mason has not the slightest idea where he's gone to that's what she made me understand sir i said i fail to credit it answered the doctor then he dismissed me rather slightingly and sent for brown who always does the detective business at merivale there was a good deal of quiet excitement about it 
and of course we all thought turbot would be run to earth in a few hours or days at most but he never was and though the police looked into the matter and hunted far and wide they never even got a clue because apparently there wasn't one to get in fact turbot vanished off the face of the earth as far as merivale was concerned and it was a nine days wonder as the saying is and no light was ever thrown upon it till long afterwards the aunt was cross-examined by the police but she knew nothing and cared less as brown said for he cross-examined her also all she could say was that turbot had gone out early and not come home in time for church as she naturally expected a boy brought up at merivale to do which was one in the eye for merivale as for the guardian he offered a reward of ten pounds for the recovery of turbot and no more which showed the market value of turbot in that guardian's opinion the only person who really worried was the doctor and i believe he didn't leave a stone unturned to root up turbot but all in vain he had entirely disappeared and being so ordinary in appearance without any distinguishing marks he simply vanished into the void as tracy said and we sold his cricket bat at auction and one or two other things of slight value which we found in his school locker but a portrait of his mother we did not sell and i gave it to the doctor who sent it to the aunt who was much obliged for it and wrote to old dunston with great thanks and said she would keep it until the happy day when turbot turned up out of the void again and that i believe made the doctor more suspicious than ever for he always believed that miss mason knew more about the turbot than she pretended in fact he told mr fortescue that she was prevaricating and fortescue said it looked as though she might be as a matter of fact fortescue had his own theory about turbot and though he never told anybody what it was till afterwards then he told everybody because he proved to be perfectly right this was that fortescue who wrote such splendid war poetry but was prevented from enlisting unfortunately by an illness of the aorta which is part of the heart and when enlarged is fearfully dangerous but while he taught at merivale his soul was entirely in the war and in his spare time he did good work chiefly at the red cross hospital in the town where fifty wounded men were always on hand when they got well they went and others came and sometimes when the war slacked off the numbers sank to thirty-two or even thirty and then when it burst out more fiercely they quickly rose to fifty again milly dunston was one of the workers there but only for swank and the sake of the uniform i believe she peeled onions and shelled peas and cut up meat and so on in the kitchen and sometimes she was allowed to go and see the wounded but i never heard that they cared much for her until they knew she worked in the kitchen then they took interest in her because she could tell them what they were going to have for supper that night and what they were going to have for dinner next day which naturally are things very important to the mind of a wounded hero mr fortescue was well liked at the hospital and took many cigarettes there also books suited to the tommies and he got to be so popular that there was a fair fight for him and if he favoured one ward and didn't go into the other for half the time the other ward got vexed about it for tommy has a jealous nature in some ways though so heroic in the field then there came rather a bad cot case called ted marmaduke and as soon as he arrived he sent a special message to the school for me and for fortescue and fortescue went to see him 
Of course, this happened long after I had left Merivale, and it was, in fact, my brother who wrote to me about it, for after six months at Woolwich, owing to luck in the war and so on, I got a commission in the Royal Engineers and went to France, and there I heard from Travers Minor about the chap who wanted to see Fortescue. He had been wounded in the cheek and also in the leg, and his face was almost hidden but his eyes were all right, and what was Fortescue's amazement to see the eyes of Ted Marmaduke goggle in the old familiar way the moment he came to his bedside, for there lay the turbot, and, fearing that he was going to die, he had determined to tell somebody the truth, and not die anonymously, so to speak. And when he found he was at Merivale, of all places, naturally he thought of Fortescue and me, but I was gone to do my bit, so Fortescue went and heard the true story of the wily turbot. He could only tell it in pieces because it hurt him awfully to talk, but in fact he wasn't allowed to talk much at a time. But what happened was this. He had gone to the aunt for his birthday and told her in secret that he hated Merivale worse than ever and was ashamed to be there with a moustache and everything, and she was a very martial and fine woman and entirely agreed with him. She told him that he was just the sort they wanted in the army and that though he could not distinguish himself at school, that was nothing at such a time and she felt positive that he would jolly soon distinguish himself in the army and do things at the front that would make Merivale fairly squirm to remember how it had treated him. And such was the aunt's warlike instinct that when he reminded her he was only seventeen, she scorned him for remembering it. "'Go to the recruiting people,' she said, "'on your seventeenth birthday, which is tomorrow, "'and when they ask you how old you are, "'say you'll be eighteen on your next birthday, "'which will be true.' "'And he gladly did so. "'But the aunt was fearfully crafty as well as warlike, "'for when Turbot decided to go off "'and enlist at Plymouth under his own name, "'she pointed out that he would instantly be traced "'by Dr. Dunstan and ignominiously dragged back "'out of the army to Merivale.' so she advised him to take a train to the north of england and enlist up there which he did do and he changed his name to ted marmaduke and the enlisting people in the north never smelled a rat and were quite agreeable to take him when he said he would be eighteen next birthday and such was the fine strategy of the aunt that she expressly made turbot promise not to write a line to her till he was under orders for the front therefore when she was asked if she knew where he was she could honestly say she did not of course long before he came back wounded he was entirely forgotten at merivale and when fortescue discovered him in our red cross hospital and then confessed that he had always believed this was what turbot had really done the excitement became great and many of the chaps asked to be allowed to go and see him and some were allowed to go but it was not till the turbot had recovered and was going back to fight that Dr. Dunstan forgave him, and he never forgave the aunt. Yet that amazing aunt was more than a fine strategist. She was a prophet also, for Fortescue found out in the papers that Ted Marmaduke of the 3rd Yorkshires was promoted a sergeant and had won the DCM for splendid bravery in Gallipoli, just as his aunt had always prophesied he would. Of course, she came to see him at the hospital, but she didn't come to Merivale. 
when he got nearly right the old turbot took tea at merivale and the doctor let the past bury the past as they say and made a speech and hoped that the chaps would follow turbot's lead in certain directions though not in all but privately to the turbot he said more than this in fact he dug up the past again and reminded turbot that he should not do evil that good may come and turbot quite saw this and said he never would again then he went back to the wars once more and had good luck i'm glad to say and before he'd been a soldier eighteen months he got his commission for though such a mug at school the military instinct was in him all the time and the war naturally brought it out when he became lieutenant bradwell his guardian tried to make friends again but he scorned him as well he might though no doubt he will always be friendly with his crafty aunt for you may say that he owed pretty well everything to her masterly mind End of story ten